I'm sick, I'm at home, I'm scared. I've been told there's nothing anybody can do. I won't kid you, there was nights where I did feel like I was dying. And it was even worse during those two weeks because it was compounded on the fact that my brain's short-circuiting. I'm having these issues with not being able to breathe. I've got the exhaustion, but it moved beyond that because then I started having chest pains, GI issues. I didn't get tested until the end of April. During that time, I had asked my doctor, the only way I can get tested is if you send me. I said, no, I think it's allergies. And he even quoted to me as saying, it could very well be lockdown anxiety. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Jonah McGarva is one of what will be millions of people around the globe with long COVID. And many pandemic survivors that develop long COVID are frustrated by their government's lack of appropriate response. Most government health leaders barely mention or even warn the public about long COVID. This is known as political invisibilization, and it works by refusing to acknowledge an issue, or in this instance, a disease. It is reminiscent of the early years of the AIDS pandemic when politicians were silent about death by AIDS. This gave rise to the advocacy chant of silence equals death. The government's motivation to invisibilize a disease may be based on ignorance or prejudice, or to protect and hide their own errors and failings from the public. Governments may also be motivated to invisibilize long COVID to deny disability payments or to protect corporate insurers from long COVID claims. Governments are notoriously burdened by entrenched bureaucrats with allegiance to their careers and the status quo, not public health. Compounding the political invisibilization of long COVID patients are physicians who dismiss physical symptoms as psychological or use the catch-all diagnosis of anxiety. This is known as medical gaslighting. It is the unacknowledged pandemic within our healthcare systems. Mix these systemic factors with some narcissistic and sociopathic personalities in both the political and medical systems, and the result is a group of very sick and disabled people being medically and economically marginalized. The good thing is that lots of physicians are experiencing long COVID, and that means they are also experiencing being gaslighted by their colleagues. This is known as getting a taste of your own medicine, and it is the most valuable medical education any of these doctors will ever experience. And as long COVID patient Jonah McGarva recounts, many doctors need to learn this lesson. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. <laughs>
And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Jonah McGarva and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Jonah's experiences with the healthcare system. Thanks, Jonas. So uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I grew up in uh, East Vancouver, British Columbia, which is uh, a mini little neighborhood of famous Vancouver. And I uh, grew up in the 80s and 90s. Kind of an interesting experience. You know, grew up a sheltered, uh, broken home, that kind of thing. Not uh, very well off. So there were some struggles growing up, for sure. It was it was an interesting childhood. I learned a lot. I got to travel at a young age. Uh, I got to go to San Francisco when I was 16 and lived there for a few months. Worked at a record store, uh, which was great, and a pizzeria. Uh, lived in Victoria for, gosh, about a year or so, and got to experience the art culture there for a while. And then as I got older, in my 20s, I, uh, I went to engineering school, uh, became a recording engineer uh, and a music producer. Uh, started working uh, with local bands, uh, doing you know production, mixing, uh, releasing albums. Had my own studio for a little while, and for about twenty odd years now, I would say, uh, worked in the entertainment industry in a variety of different roles. Uh, everything from being a tour manager to customer service, uh, working box office at pretty much every venue or club uh, in the Lower Mainland, traveled the world on tours, uh, booked some amazing events uh, that, you know, 20,000 sellouts, uh, you know, halfway around the world. Uh, so it's it's been an interesting adventure. Uh, but after, yeah, about 20 years, I uh, made a career change. Uh, and said, uh, I'm done with the hectic life. I'm wanting to relax. I just got married a couple of years ago. So I want to enjoy that and kind of figure out, you know, the next plan. And uh, so I've been active in radio uh, locally here in Vancouver for about a year, but technically only six months because I got sick. So right so that uh, really intersects with the uh, topic of my podcast so what happened uh, about six or seven months ago so i was at my niece's school play uh, i remember the date well it was uh sunday march the 8th she was doing a, a school play school musical and i'm sitting in the front row with my wife and, and some family members and it's about halfway through the, the performance and I I felt like I swallowed a fly it was the only way I could describe it just out of nowhere I just felt this incredible lump in my throat and I started having a coughing attack uh, I hadn't been sick previously you know there was there was no signs of anything I didn't need anything beforehand that would have got lodged throat or anything it may have been a dry throat sure but regardless I felt this lump and I had a coughing fit there was definitely some people looking at me and I, I believe I had a bottle of water with me. So I took a couple of drinks of, of water, you know, tried to clear my throat and made it through the rest of the play. But I noticed right away, I, I felt a burning sensation in the throat, you know, being aware of what COVID was and where it was uh, rising in numbers slowly, but it was, you know, it was, still a safe bet here in BC. It wasn't catastrophic. You know, like I say, I work in radio, so I it got my ear to the ground and I was a little worried. So I waited it out. I stayed at home. Um, this was before there was any mandate to do so. Um, I just did so for the next day and just kind of rested and noticed I had a persistent cough uh, and it started getting worse without getting into the gross details, the, the stuff that I was coughing up in these two days was pretty bad. And I noticed how quick it had happened. And, you know, I've been sick before. Um, I've had pneumonia once. And, uh, you know, I know how quick, you know, these coughing attacks can, can bring up things in, internally. And I was amazed at how quicker this was. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it was like that night, 
Like I just, I started crashing, um, but it really didn't hit me for a solid, probably 10 days, almost two weeks. It was like a very, very bad cold at first. And I called my work and said I was sick. And they told me, stay at home, rest up. I called them up, I think it was the Tuesday, the next week. So this would have been March 15th or 16th, but it was the Tuesday. And I said, listen, I've, I've still got a really bad throat here. I'm coughing. It feels like it's on fire. My lungs hurt. I've got some GI issues. I've got these headaches. I'm not sleeping. I, I shouldn't come to work. And I said, yes, take this week off. So now I'm in week two. The next day, lockdown happens. I'm left in a state of, what do I do? I just basically decided at that point, well, I got no choice. I mean, the mandate is if you're sick, stay at home for the 10 days or whatever quarantine. There's no testing available. Just stay at home. Uh, the orders were to stay at home even if you weren't sick, but I was considered to be an essential worker. I was forced to stay at home for those 10 days. But luckily, during those 10 days is when I got sick even worse. Those two weeks I wouldn't wish on anybody. I didn't go to the hospital and I didn't feel honestly that I needed to because of all the stories I was reading in the media about how severe some of the cases were. And it honestly made me depressed uh, to the point of I didn't want to be locked down for my wife. I never see her again. I uh, didn't want to put myself on a ventilator or in the hospital when somebody else could have had that care. That was more of a priority than what I thought I was going through. So it put me in a little bit of a challenging situation in order to make that determination. I'm sick. I'm at home. I'm scared. I've been told there's nothing anybody can do at this point unless you feel like you're dying. And I won't kid you, there was nights where I did feel like I was dying, where I didn't know if I was going to die in my sleep because I was having so much trouble breathing. But the thing was, is I could still breathe. So I made that conscious decision to say, well, if it is my time, I'd much rather have it at home in a controlled, somewhat relaxed environment, not a burden on the system when somebody else needs it. And I'm with my wife and my cat who's unfortunately got cancer. So I'm dealing with that as well. <laughs> it's, uh, so it's been a lot of emotions. Yeah, I couldn't understand how my body was failing me. Being 41 years old and experiencing living for that long, you know how your body works. You know when things aren't working right. I was fighting with breathing. I was fighting with remembering to even breathe. There was moments where I, I'd be lying in bed and I'd have to catch myself. Even now I, I experience it. The, the amount of cognitive dissonance that just exists. My brain is short-circuiting constantly. And I'm a technical person. I'm somebody who's, you know, worked on computers since I was six years old in the 80s. I mean, I was programming basic at the age of six. <laughs> you know, I, I've been playing musical instruments since I was five and six years old. I've been an avid music lover and, and a music buff and a gearhead. And I mean, I'm a technical person. Uh, I hate numbers and math, but I, I'm technical, go figure. I can't find words anymore. I can't describe things. I can't concentrate. I can't string proper sentences together most of the time. And, and you can probably even see that now. Um, and it was even worse during those two weeks because it was com compounded on the fact that my brain's short-circuiting. I'm having these issues with not being able to breathe. I've got the exhaustion. But it moved beyond that because then I started having chest pains. I started having GI issues. Uh, they weren't as severe as a lot of the stories I'd read. But the one 
thing that threw me for a loop, at least from what I, I can recall, I didn't show any signs of fever. Now, that's bizarre <laughs> because that's supposed to be one of the top two, three symptoms of COVID right there. I didn't present it. I, my wife thinks I may have had it, uh, like a fever on a day or two, for whatever reason, uh, not that I can recall, we didn't take my temperature. Regardless, I didn't get tested until the end of April when it became public here in BC. During that time, I had asked my doctor specifically, should I go get tested? The only way I can get tested is if you send me or unless I'm in a hospital. I said, no, I think it's allergies. And he even quoted to me as saying, it could very well be lockdown anxiety. I'm not going to lie to you. I was incensed when he said that. I'm, I'm sick. I'm thinking I'm dying here when he said this to me. And I think this, this conversation would have been about the first week of April. So it was right after that 10 day or so spell where I was bedridden and it's a blur. I don't remember those two weeks. I really don't. Other than just, I have nightmares now about me being able to not breathe and, and die in my sleep, right? So backing yeah. up, so he says, oh, I think it's allergies or you're anxious and, and you're incensed. How did you respond to him in the moment? I was very calm with him, but I was disappointed. And technically he wasn't my official doctor. Uh, my actual doctor had some health issues in January and had to retire. So the office during COVID took his patients and shuffled them off to other doctors. This doctor is as nice as he was. He explained that there was not much he could do at this point and there was no testing, no way to confirm and he even told me flat out a few times in our conversations, many conversations in April, he explained to me that there would be nothing that could be done even if we did all these tests. So it would just be a waste of time. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, you would be poked and prodded and, you know, do you want that? Was basically what he asked. Uh, and so at the end of all of that, our interactions I think ended in July. <laughs> And I went sought a second opinion at the same office because I can't get a doctor anywhere in BC. Like the wait list to get a new GP is insane. And despite my media appearances, you know, I don't have a family doctor. Nobody wants to touch me with a 10 foot pole. And I've, I'm a research case here. <laughs> you know, there's 4,000 others, at least like myself across this country who should be research cases. Why, why can't I get help? In the conversation, going back to that, in my response to him, I explained that it wasn't good enough for me. And I said, I, I need something to combat these symptoms, at least. So he put me on about six or seven different medications over a period of three, four months, which I'm still currently on. And even the new doctor, new doctor, has said that I should continue on this. Um, quote unquote treatment. Now, some of these medications were recently FDA approved in June and July for treatment of COVID, but they're steroids and they're steroids that are typically used for people with asthma, but it's a, it's a nasty steroid and it's on the same level of whatever Trump's taking. It's not the same, but it's on that level. That being said, it, it was a battle dealing with him because the whole time I never felt like I was believed. I didn't feel like he understood what I was going through, even when I would have a coughing attack on the phone with him. Uh, at one point, I asked him, I think in June, you know, is there any, anything you can do? He said, no. He said, you can maybe go get tested again, but do you really want that? Again, do you want to put yourself through that? Because it's just going to come back negative. Sorry. And when he was talking about testing, was he talking about testing some of your different organs or? No, just, just the regular COVID test, basically. I asked him, I said, is there anything we can do? Is there anything like, you know, I'll, I, I'll even pay out of pocket and go see like a specialist and pay privately if I have to. Like, well, what can I do? You're a doctor. Like, please help me. Just threw his hands up. I mean, honestly, like the only way I can describe it is gaslit. 
You know, I was made to feel like it was all in my head and it wasn't severe enough to be taken seriously. And it was just a persistent cough from a cold that I caught or that it's allergies. It got to the point where he said, okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll administer a bunch of tests for you. I'll finally give in. And so he administered me for, for allergy tests. And I spoke to the allergist and right off the bat, he said, I don't think it's allergies. I think it's COVID. He told me that on the phone. Uh, Cause he interviewed me on the phone. He asked me about all the symptoms. He said, when did they all start? And this, that, and the other. And he was like, okay, well go get a blood test. I'm going to ask for all this extra stuff. And so I'm now in the process of getting that dealt with, but it started off as an allergy test. Like I, I haven't been tested for antibodies. I haven't been tested. You know, there's no serology test still in BC. So that's not a thing. There's been no interest outside of one chest x-ray that I got and it's, and it turned up fine despite me having a coughing attack while it was, it put me in a position where every conversation I had with him seemed like it was going to be an argument that I was not going to win. So I was always in a constant state of anxiety before I would even talk to him. Getting an appointment with him would sometimes take two weeks, three weeks, and I would either get worse or I would get better. The good news was, is that early July, I started feeling like I was recovering. I felt like the medications were working. I was on a bunch of allergy medications. Like I said, the asthma inhalers, the steroids, um, some pain blockers and painkillers, a variety of different medications. And I felt like they were all working. And so I informed my work. I said, hey, maybe a week or two and I'll be back. I'm feeling about 80, 85%. Got some energy. I'm doing some exercise based off some research that I've done uh, that maybe suggests I should do something like pace. And so I decided to pick up my daily routine of doing long walks around a giant park here in Vancouver called Central Park. I used to be able to walk around it, uh, you know, in about an hour, hour, 15 minutes. I started doing that through June uh, and July. I started doing half the park to start off with or a quarter, right? And slowly built myself up. And I would find I would get really tired after, you know, walking for 40 minutes, half hour. I would get home and I'd feel like I was at the gym for an hour, hour and a half. It'd feel like I just ran a marathon, utterly exhausted. The issue with doing the pace that I was doing and that I researched basically put me in a relapse. Um, I was doing fine for two, two and a half weeks. I was picking up the pace. I was enjoying my walks. Uh, I was doing it daily. I eventually started doing a full park and I was feeling confident. And then, I don't know, one day I, I literally had a coughing fit and it winded me and I bent over like an ironing board. I just, I couldn't breathe and I, I felt like I was choking and I've choked before and it felt like that. And I was scared again, like I was when I was first sick. I mean, I used to have coughing fits in the shower and I was worried I was gonna have a heart attack or choke in the shower. Um, and my wife's not home or she's on the other side of the house and doesn't know. So I called my doctor again. And, and then that's when we got on the, the process of, okay, it's, let's do these allergy tests. And at that point I said, okay, you're not helping me. I'm telling you, I'm back to being sick again after doing rehab. <laughs> not that he had suggested it, but he... He didn't really recommend it, but he didn't disagree with it when I brought it up in our conversations from the research that I'd, I'd done about in the UK talking about, um, you know, doing some light to moderate physical rehab. Folks who aren't familiar with PACE, PACE is an infamous study out of the UK that was looking at patients with ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis. And it was uh, created by a group of psychiatrists who said that the problem with these patients were not that they were physically sick, but that they had uh, a fear of exercise. And that's what 
their problem was and that the treatment for this was graded exercise to do a little bit more exercise each day. Um, the problem with that is that the disease of ME has a ceiling on how much exertion a person can do and then they have a delayed and dysfunctional response to exertion so they end up getting sicker. So that's the pace that you had seen the research about and uh, tried to use. The reason why I went down that route, I'll be perfectly honest, uh, is the same reason why a lot of other folks I personally know with long COVID did the same thing, is that we weren't getting answers. We weren't being believed by our doctors. And some of them had suggested this. So of course, we're looking for answers and we're going to do it. Now, again, I wasn't suggested by my physician at the time to do it, but I also wasn't told not to do it. And then in seeing in the support groups that I was in around the world, that people were talking about this as a possible, not solution, but as a, as a treatment because of these studies and the correlation between ME. So, you know, I was at my wit's end and I, I felt like I had to play my own doctor here. I had to do my own research. I had to do my own due diligence. And it's, it's what made me decide to go public. Uh, a good friend of mine, childhood friend of mine actually here in Vancouver, uh, went public towards the end of July uh, with one of the first national stories about long COVID. I didn't know he had it until he made a post about it three or four days prior on Facebook to his friends. He said, guys, I've had COVID for months this isn't right. And so he went to, I believe it was the Globe and Mail, did a story with him on persistent symptoms. He uh, contacted me, or I contacted him, sorry, and, you know, talked about the similarities in our experiences. And we talked off the record about the struggles we faced with our doctors and the stories were virtually identical. And we're both living in the same city. That when I started thinking, potentially um, that maybe this is like mandated somehow, maybe mandated due to confusion, not having the answers, not wanting to cause fear and panic in the populace. I don't know. Odd that there's so many doctors across this country who are flat out ignoring this. And, and, I've seen these similarities occur with friends who suffered from ME, CFS, HIV, AIDS. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. Even as a child, I was very well aware of what was happening. There was no help for many years. There was gaslighting everywhere. There was blame placed on people. Oh, well, it's your fault that you got sick and, and, and it's your fault you're not better. What kind of logic is that, especially to come from physicians that are supposed to be there to help you? But then when you see that same treatment occurring with politicians on a national level, I mean, I've petitioned some of this country's top politicians and I've been flat out ignored, no replies. I've tweeted, I've sent emails, I've contacted campaigns, nothing. Now, don't get me wrong, I know people that have succeeded, but I just find it funny that there just seems to be like a hear no evil, see no evil approach to this. And I sympathize with those in health and in politics who don't have the answers. But if they can't acknowledge that at least there's a problem, how are they ever going to find a solution? And so that's why I, I went public because I, it wasn't my story I wanted to tell. It was the story of everybody else who had basically the same story. And I had the means to get my story out and I had the means to, to help shine a light on this. And unfortunately it's worked, but it also hasn't. Uh, in one way it did work with my new doctor. She's not my official doctor, but she agrees I've, got COVID and it's long COVID. She has one other patient. She told me that she has the exact same symptoms going through the exact same things, but she has said the exact same thing. The previous doctor has said, 
not much we can do. You tested negative, and that's the same thing I've heard time and time again. You tested negative, so there's nothing we can do. If I had tested positive, I would be in all the clinical trials here in BC right now, guaranteed. But I didn't test positive. I got tested almost two months after I fell sick. So of course I'm not gonna test positive. The new doctor is supportive. Reading between the lines, there's only so much I think she can do. And I think she sympathizes. I spoke with her uh, yesterday and I, I'm confident she sympathizes with what I'm physically going through and she understands it. She said she's ordering me a bunch of tests. I don't know what these tests are. She said her assistant will call me and let me know. So it's kind of a surprise, I guess. Uh, I explained to her that I can't continue allowing us to be ignored. And that's been my approach through, you know, my advocacy work is making sure that, you know, people are aware, um, especially politicians and physicians, those two in particular, that they're aware that this is a huge issue. And science is now looking like a good majority of young people with non-pre-existing conditions, they get COVID regardless of how severe or not it is, will end up with long COVID. Now, they're still learning about this on a daily basis. And I see this, the new science that comes out daily, weekly, and it changes. And a lot of it's scary. You know, there's correlations now that I'm reading some of the support groups, you know, people getting other sicknesses or diseases, not necessarily because of COVID, the science doesn't know, but it's coincidental that, you know, their immune systems are already down right now. So of course other things can attack them. I don't go out in public very often. And if I do, I'm masked up, I'm staying with people, I'm not touching anything. Uh, because I, I just don't know. And who knows when I have these flare-ups, these days where I can't think, I can't get out of bed, I'm having coughing fits, I'm sneezing. Who knows if I'm contagious? I mean, science right now is saying, no, it's not a thing, but is it a thing? I mean, will that science change tomorrow? I don't want to play that, that card right now. So I'd rather sit at home, you know, in front of a lap, uh, in front of uh, the computer, do my, do my research when the brain fog allows for it, um, compare my notes with, you know, other survivors, other advocates around the world, get the story out there. And my goal isn't to be antagonistic, start fights or any of that. It's not political. It's not conspiracy based. It's about finding answers to this and if the answer is that there is a mandate somewhere somewhere to ignore this or to not look at it then that's concerning to me wouldn't you think yeah it's uh ethically irresponsible that i don't think any of our health leaders in any province or nationally has publicly acknowledged long covid Correct me if I'm wrong, but I am not aware. And I've been keeping my eyes open because I'm waiting for it. Yeah, I'm waiting for it too. Uh, the, the closest I've seen it on at least the local provincial level uh, was a few weeks, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who, you know, I would say has done a fabulous job here, but COVID's become politicized here now. She held a press conference a few weeks ago where she discussed long haulers here in BC. And she said, based off of their statistics, there's 200 of them in this province. Now these are based off the statistics of people who tested positive. So they haven't gone into our support groups and seen our surveys and our stats, which they can do. These are public. You know that you, you can, anybody can go, go on a site and see that. Right. So it makes me curious as to why we haven't been contacted you know i've made national news now three times with my story it, it astonishes me that the frustration level of the pure ignorance to this i mean side note i mean let's look at you know what's going on with with serb and crb so i appreciate absolutely that program and i think it's shown that potentially universal basic income may work 
It works in other countries when it's applied and it increased. It's just for the folks who don't know what CERB is, CERB's a, an acronym. It's the, uh, it replaces the income for people who couldn't work during COVID or their business was closed. So it's at $2,000 a month and it's called CERB, but it came to an end at the end of September. Yes, it, it did. Sadly, a bunch of us who are still very much affected with long COVID can't work. The problem with what's happened with CERB on a political level is when it ended at the end of September, the government um, had agreed essentially to replace it with a variety of other programs uh, that essentially helped out, quote unquote, in the same ways that CERB did. Initially, the first proposals of it, it was actually a drastically different program uh, with a lot of hoops to jump through. It, it was fought quite hardly in Parliament um, after Parliament was prolonged for a few weeks, uh, specifically over this topic, to, I guess, not get into three weeks worth of debate or to extend it. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a politician. Uh, but regardless, they put a hold on it. So they decided to deal with it at the end of September, basically the week that CERB ended and the week after it ended. So everybody that was on CERB now is not able to pay rent as of October 1st, and we're on October 9th, and myself included. They're not able to buy groceries. They're not able to pay for additional money that may be required for the prescriptions. Uh, we've got great health here in Canada, for sure. Uh, one of the inhalers I take is $400 in America. Here, I think maybe I paid $20 with my insurance, but it's still $20, and when you don't have an income, you're dealing with a cat with cancer, <laughs> you know, all of these things. It's a battle. So politically, what I, I don't understand is why there's that gap, because now all of these people that were sick and on CERB now don't have any financial support. So we didn't have the uh, health support. We didn't have the support from our friends and families for a variety of reasons, whether it was conspiracy, fear, ignorance, whatever politics but now we've got this financial issue and some of us including myself technically don't qualify for the new program crb because we're sick and we're still sick and even if we have doctors who agree and sign off that we're still sick we don't qualify for that program even though crb technically is COVID related, but we still don't qualify. So there's two programs we do qualify for, which is the two week paid sick leave, which is great. And that's now a mandated thing across the country, which will protect workers for generations to come. And it's an awesome political uh, maneuvering done by the NDP. And I, I, I applaud them wholeheartedly for that. That was great and something this country needed. The problem with that is somebody like me or another long hauler, one of the 4,000 plus that I'm aware of in this country, faces this financial situation, they're only entitled to those two weeks if they get COVID. COVID, as I've stated, and as science is now stating, looks like it lasts a lot longer than two weeks. So if you're recovering for seven months, that two-week supplement that you get from the government isn't going to help you at all. That being said, for somebody like myself, what I've decided to do is also attack the problem twofold. And so I've applied for EI sickness and I've gotten some support from my employer on this, which is great. And yesterday I talked to my new doctor about this, who had to sign off on a functional abilities form to basically do long-term disability through my work. But I'm part-time at my work, so I'm not covered. I'm on no special plan. There's no sick leave. There's no paid leave. There's nothing. I've got nothing. Um, so I have to search out all of this help myself. Going through this process of having no help from the government, no help from politicians, no clear understanding of what my potential treatment or prognosis could be, what the future holds, when I can go back to work, how am I going to pay the rent, how am I going to pay for potential treatment. I mean, I've been going for massage therapy for months due to a car accident I was in a few years ago. I've got pretty bad whiplash and, and muscle issues in my shoulder. And I've been doing physio 
and rehab for that for three years. I can't do the physio now because of the long COVID and because of the effects of what the pace did to me. I can't put my body through it and I'm not going to because I still haven't recovered from that relapse. And it's been two, almost two and a half months of, of health. It's like I'm sick part two. You know, there's some days, even this morning, I'm not going to lie. I woke up this morning. I maybe had four hours sleep last night. Lots of nightmares, tons of anxiety, waking up, wondering what day it is, what time it is, what do I have to do today? Can I get it done? A, remind myself what needs to be done in the day because I'll forget. But also to pace myself and not in the way that we were talking about earlier, but pacing, which gets confused a lot with pace uh, because the words are similar, but one's an acronym and a study and the other one's an action. And so the action of pacing oneself, which has been my approach the past two months has been rest, rest, rest. Don't overexert yourself. Tell those around you that you may shut off at any second. I read an article this morning. It showed that people with long COVID now these people that are being studied and being pulled about their symptoms and how they feel, they're actually saying that they're sicker now than when they first got sick. Now imagine that for a second. These are people, and these, some of these people, and I, I was reading the interviews this morning, some of these people were on ventilators. Some of these people nearly died. And they're saying that the after effects of who they are today is worse than what they experienced when they almost actually died. I'm not an emotional guy, Scott, but I think you can tell right now it's bringing a tear to my eye. Like reading it this morning and just talking about it, 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 it hit home because I, I felt like I had recovered. I felt like there was a light at the end of this damn tunnel. It's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough situation to be in. You know, there's thousands of us in Canada who are going through this. There's so many ramifications of things that we're dealing with. Like I said, whether it's financially, whether it's emotionally, I mean, I know I suffer from PTSD now from just trying to make that decision. Do I die at home or do I die in a hospital? That's not a decision that a normal human being should have to go through. Being told that unless you no, think you're dying, stay at home. That's basically a mandate to say that unless you could die at home. That's, that's what I got out of it. And I'm sure there was thousands of others who got that as well. It's frustrating because, you know, there's been so much time that's lapsed. To see it on an international level, the, the scale of different countries taking different approaches to this has been absolutely fascinating. And when people ask me how to describe COVID in one word, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Because as I referred to earlier, it's, it's shining a light on everything that's wrong in Western society, all the things that need a good solid look at, especially our health systems. And again, it's not just in Canada. I mean, we look at what's happening in America. Uh, we look at what's happening in the UK, in Europe. We look at what's happening in parts of Asia, uh, Australia, but then we also got to look at the positives. And here's the other thing is I'm a positive person through this all. And I, I really can't stress that enough. I, so positive about this. I see there's a light at the end of the tunnel because I see countries like Wales who are leading the charge and, and forcing this issue through their parliament and saying, no, enough's enough. I see New Zealand looking at this. I see countries like Taiwan who've been tackling this since day one and nobody's paying attention to it. And my best friend lives in Taiwan. He's an expat from Winnipeg. And he's married to a local. He's been living there for 15 years. He's got a farm. He teaches English to school children. He's a good guy. He's told me what's going on firsthand in Taiwan and how their numbers are non-existent and how they're non-existent. And where's the media on it? Where's the politicians around the rest of the world asking them, how did you do this? Even the WHO, they're not interested. And we know that there's political issues, right? We know, we know, we can read between the lines. But that being said, is that there are countries that have looked at this and I hate to say it, and I've said this before, but even in America, long COVID 
is taken more seriously than it is here in Canada, but not taken seriously enough to the point where even somebody of Melissa Milano's stature or somebody of Chris Cuomo's stature still gets the respect that they deserve because the majority of politicians in America, doesn't matter what side of the fence they're on, don't talk about it. Long haulers aren't a thing, long COVID isn't a thing. Just because you got some celebrities that have it and been vocal about it, doesn't mean it's a thing. Because it's fake news, I guess, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, as somebody who's living with HIV, and I remember the early AIDS of the AIDS pandemic and how it took how many years, five, six years before the US president verbalized publicly the word AIDS or HIV. And it's the, I see the similarities with long COVID, you know, they have not acknowledged it and it's invisibilizing long COVID patients, medically marginalizing. It makes it harder if you have to apply for long-term disability. Well, if your doctor doesn't acknowledge it and if the government doesn't acknowledge it, it's a way for you to be denied insurance coverage, either the government's insurance or private insurers because they'll take anything they can grab onto to deny a, a claim, especially a long-term disability claim. Well, absolutely. And I mean, the problem that I think, at least in America, what's now coming up is for those that test positive, that's now a pre-existing condition as per their, their health laws and their insurance policies and how America works. And I, I'm sure other countries are going to take notice of that. So if COVID's a pre-existing condition and the way that long COVID is being treated as a separate thing, even though they're related and it's an after effect, it's being looked at as a separate thing by a lot of physicians and politicians around the world. We come to this conclusion that now you've had COVID, so we're not going to protect you because you've got long COVID, right? We'll protect you with the COVID. And then after that two weeks, that's it. You've got, you, you've got your sick money as per, you know, the CRB sickness one, or in America, they've got other, other stimulus packages based on the same kind of thing or through their insurance or, or their, their workplace. It's almost like they're setting us all up for failure to protect something now. I don't know what they're trying to protect. <laughs> and like I say, I'm not a conspiratorialist. I, I don't want to think like that, but this is an odd virus. Let's be real. I mean, there's so many similarities, as you just mentioned, to the way that HIV and AIDS played out through the mid to late eighties and early nineties. There's so many similarities in the politics behind it, in the way that uh, pharmaceutical companies are looking at it. Uh, vaccine companies are, doing what they're doing. I mean, even in the eighties, they were talking about, Oh, we can get a vaccine for AIDS. Well, where how many years later do we have one where, you know, no. Right. So the, the reality is, is that the only way I think all of us are going to get through this is we, we have to not let our foot off the gas pedal. And I'm not going to lie to you, but I've had people tell, tell me that I should be quiet, even that I shouldn't, raises as, as much ruckus as I do, or I shouldn't tell my story, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that. And these are other people within the community. And what's their reasoning behind that? I honestly don't know. Fear, maybe. It's, it's bizarre. I, I almost equate it to the same type of, and forgive me, I'm not trying to knock these people down or their, their experiences down, but it's like an, it's, it's an ignorant, way of thinking that happens psychologically based off of fear, right? So the human brain, like I'm not a psychologist by any means, but I understand a lot of psychology and the human brain. I mean, it, when it doesn't have answers for things, it, it tries to fill in those gaps, right? It makes the best guess, the lowest common denominator. That's where conspiracy theories come from. That's where bad politics come from. That's where bad decisions and bad advice come from, right? I mean, let's be real here. I'm not trying to be facetious. We're all guilty of it, right? I think it's fear. I think that's the end result. These people are scared. Um, I, I don't, it's not the majority. Don't get me wrong. Some of the mm -hmm. feedback I've gotten from around the world, uh, has been absolutely heart touching. Um, but I'm not in this for 
acknowledgement personally. I mean, I am on a medical standpoint, but media or any of that, I really don't care. I'm when I get angry about something or I get upset about something and it's something that's personally affected me, I try to write that wrong and I try to make that voice heard, whether I'm successful or not, it doesn't matter to me. And if people are going to tell me to be quiet, it's just going to make me louder because this is a serious issue. And I don't want to be fighting this in 20 years still. I want to be retired. I want to have a farm. I want to, you know, I want to live life. I don't have the energy even on a daily basis to fight for this, to be an advocate for myself and for others. I didn't ask to be an advocate. Advocacy sought me and I don't regret it. It's been an amazing run and I'm still doing some great things that I think are gonna help bring this, this attention to the forefront. But you know, going on, on the aspect of what's happening around the world, that's my concentration right now not just locally and in Canada, but shining a light on what's happening here in Canada around the world. Because in reality, it's a failure of the public health system during a public pandemic. In my mind, it's no different than some of the bad political mandating in the States about how it spreads and this, that, and the other. And again, I don't want to get into the politics because I don't want to divide people. This is about the health and betterment of everyone who suffers from this. It doesn't discriminate between left or right, blue versus red, liberal versus Democrat versus conservative versus bloc or any of that, it doesn't. The reality is we need to work together and there's good news that I can report um, that I'm sure you're well aware of that this week uh, I partook in a conference through the University of Calgary coming school of medicine and it was headed up by Dr. Kelly Burak who contracted COVID at a bond spiel in Calgary in early March. He was infected at the same time I was and he saw my story on the CBC and reached out to me and said, uh, Hey, I host this thing at the university of Calgary for all the physicians, all of our students, uh, researchers can tune in across the country. It's called COVID corner. And I want to tell your story. I've told mine, but we want to get the long hauler perspective, especially the non-severe perspective. So I was asked to tell my story and I partook in this conference, uh, did a nice little video about it, which was great. And then I sat in and got to listen to over a dozen medical professionals, the top doctors in Alberta, from every department that I had mentioned earlier. <laughs> everything we had the top brain guy we had the top lung person we had the you know the specialist in me and cfs we had uh rheumatology we had everything gastrointestinal i mean everything was covered all the bases were covered the end result of this meeting uh which will be published on their website soon is basically that they've adopted in all essence the same principle that's now in place in wales which is hopefully by Christmas, there'll be treatment centers, there'll be a multi-pronged approach to studying and researching those infected, positive or negative. The mandate is on between all the physicians to have conversations with each other. If you don't know what's wrong, call someone else right away. Here's an internal number to call and get further advice. Here's some additional PDFs and websites and seminars and things to watch, to pay attention to. So during this two and a half hour long conference, all of the students at the, at the coming school of medicine are participating in this. So future doctors are now learning uh, as a Wednesday night of the future of how to, to potentially treat this and look at this and how to approach this problem. So as far as I'm aware of, this is the first time across the country that the physicians in a specific province have mandated their provincial government and said, here's our, our plan. Here's how we get to this. And this is what we need to do. We need to open up a treatment center. We need to people, we need to acknowledge them. We can't dismiss it. They said it all themselves. I heard it. It'll be on their video. And I'm so 
when I heard that, I mean, I was just amazed because it's the first step. But the problem is, is that it's only in Alberta. I'm not from Alberta. I'm from BC. <laughs> so technically, unless I move, it doesn't help me squat. You know, it's a start, though. I think it's going to lead to great things. And the conversations I've had with quite a few people since then uh, that have reached out to me, it's looking positive. This, this might have been one of those moments where we can look back on in history and go, this is when maybe the tide started turning in the favor of at least acknowledging. Again, I, as I said in the, in the conference, my goal isn't to ask for the answer now. I know we don't have the answer. It's about acknowledging that the problem exists and then coming together and finding the answer. And I'd like to say on Wednesday, we did. So. Well, yeah, that is hopeful. Uh, yeah, hopefully that'll spread outside of Alberta and to the other provinces and across Canada. And that's a, I think that's a good place to, to leave it, Jonah, on that positive note, that hopeful note. Although I will note that it sounds like it's an informal group of doctors that are pushing this forward, not the Alberta Medical Association, which should have been leading the conversation and the change. Yeah, you would think. Again, I'm not a physician. I'm not in the medical field. I'm not in the education field. I was just asked to participate in this conference. But my take on it is that there's some doctors who are very well aware that this is a problem and it needs focus. I commend them for their work. It took guts to do what I witnessed, and it's going to take even more guts to do what they're doing over the next few weeks. I don't know how they're going to do what they're going to do and how they're going to achieve it. I, again, like I'm not in that circle, so it's, it's tough to say. I can only theorize and, and pull out hypotheticals, but based off of what was presented to me and I think what was presented to the other doctors who were in attendance and, and all the folks who had registered from afar. I mean, we had, we had members from Survivor Corps down in America who witnessed it and watched it. We had other medical professionals from across this country that have contacted me off the record and said, thanks for posting the link in whatever support group, whether it was the long hauler support group that Susie Golding does, uh, which is the main one here in Canada. Uh, whether it was Survivor Corps in America, which is like 30, 40,000 strong. <laughs> it's ridiculous, those numbers. It, it's, it's, it, it went around. So, and I, I imagine it's going to continue being talked about and being discussed. I don't think they would have made it such a focus and a teachable presentation. That's the other thing. It, it was teachable. You get graded on this, you get credits for it. So to me, that says this is being taken serious because you can't just teach something that isn't real. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, hopefully we'll have to see how Alberta operationalizes that. And you, you brought up the point about the social media. So if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, how can they connect with you? Uh, that's that's pretty easy. I'm very active and vocal on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and somewhat on Facebook. On Instagram, I'm at Jonah underscore McGarva. And how do you spell McGarva? That's M, small c, capital G, A-R-V-A. But if you're in Twitter land, it's all lowercase, M-C-G-A-R-V-A. And first name Jonah. Thank you so much. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time, uh, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and we'll definitely have to circle back and catch up with your story and see how you're doing, you know, down the road and if you're going to get on the path to having that farm that you want. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jonah. Rest hard. Well, a big thank you to Jonah McGarva for sharing his experience of living with long COVID and trying to navigate the medical system. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. 
premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.